From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. Native American culture is quite nuanced. There is no one way to define a group of people who are Native and Indigenous to this country. But I think Due South has found the perfect teacher who can explain Native culture, its people, and also delve into the harmful stereotypes that need to be dispelled. Here is Dr. Brittany Hunt giving her TEDx talk at UNC Charlotte. Think for one moment about what you learned. For most people, it goes something like this. Columbus discovered America, though there were already people here. Then Thanksgiving happened and the pilgrims and Indians had a nice little meal together that wasn't nice. And then there was the Trail of Tears, if you learn about that at all. And that's it. Hunt is a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. She earned her Ph.D. in Curriculum and Instruction at UNC Charlotte. Today, she is an assistant professor at the Virginia Tech School of Education. Hunt grew up in Lumberton, North Carolina, in Robeson County, where it seems like everyone is Lumbee. It was a village that kept her safe. A lot of my teachers were Native. I had Native principals. I went to a Native church. I lived in a Native community and then turned 18 and got into Duke University. Actually, it's the only college I applied to, which looking back is very... I don't know, oh, e- my. egotistical of me, <laughs> but I got in, so I don't I don't know. I got in, and I, I went in 2008, and was I experienced what I would describe as extreme culture shock. And so coming from this community that had a large indigenous presence to then being at Duke, which had a very, very small indigenous population, I was one of maybe five indigenous students on campus, was majorly shocking to me. And so not only that kind of isolation of going from one of many to one of a few, but then having my peers always questioning me about my indigenous identity. So they would say, what are you? And then I would say, I'm native. And they would say, well, are you sure? Or they would say, well, what part native are you? Everyone was always expecting me to be kind of part native and never in full. And I don't think that's something that really happens to other races of people. People don't generally question people uh, to that degree. And so it became something that felt like it was really uh, I was being interrogated for or I was kind of on trial for. So that was really, really difficult for me. At any point, did you want to leave Duke University and maybe attend another school that you thought maybe would be, you know, more understanding, more welcoming? Yeah, I thought about it a lot of times. Um in 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 Lumberton in Robinson County, there is UNC Pembroke, which is a, a university that was created by and for Native people. And so I strongly considered leaving Duke and going to UNCP, um, especially after there was one particular incident. I worked on campus at the library there, and there was a security guard who would work the night shifts with us just in case something would happen. And so I was working with him. And he asked me where I was from, and I told him I was from Lumberton. And he said, oh, I've heard of those Lumberton Indians. He said they have smaller brains than the rest of the population. Wow, those and are I, fighting words, you know. Yeah, those are fighting words. But at, at that age, I really didn't know how to respond to a comment like that. And it it was so out of – it was it was beyond anything that I had ever heard um, in terms of my – of. of of, of, I guess, stereotypes of indigenous people that he would, he really thought that I would have a smaller brain or that my people had smaller brains. And so there were times like that where I really questioned my place there. And if I 
should go somewhere else where I would be or where my indigeneity would not even be questioned at all. Um, but in the end, I eventually persisted and graduated in 2012. Well, one thing that I definitely heard when you entered Duke University, you wanted to be a doctor. You wanted to be a pediatrician, for example. But because of your experiences there, you kind of changed gears. You decided to go into education. Yes, I did. So from all of the crazy and weird and strange comments that people made to me about being indigenous, it kind of, I guess, funneled me into the career path that I'm on now, which is um, I'm a professor and I teach about indigenous education and I teach a lot about stereotypes of indigenous people and how we can kind of disentangle our minds from these stereotypes. And so, yeah, that my my negative experiences there kind of funneled me into a profession now that I think is very positive and, and can really help to transform people's lives and people's mindsets about indigeneity. And then I'm assuming you got to even delve in even deeper when you were at UNC um, Charlotte, you know, working on your PhD where you got to, you know, go into the classroom and actually, you know, hone your skills and making sure um, – that the right messages were being um, presented. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, at every stage, I guess, of my educational journey, so from undergrad to master's to doctoral level, I always expect that the people, I guess, in the program or in the school will be more Indigenous conscious. But what I learned is that's not the case. Um, There were a few folks in my program at UNC Charlotte. I remember one particular person mentioned that um, in in the school that she worked in, one of the projects that she had students do was she had them bring in photographs of their family members. And then she had these cartoon coloring uh, sheets of Native people. And so for Indigenous Peoples Day, what she did is she had the students cut out the faces of their family members from the photographs and then paste them on top of the Native people in the cartoon sheet, and then they would color that picture. And I asked her, you know, why would she do an activity like that, or what was the the meaning or the message behind that? Um, And she really couldn't describe it. Uh, She really couldn't explain it. Several teachers in the past had told her to please stop doing that activity, and she'd even contacted a museum in D.C. that an indigenous museum in D.C., and they told her to please stop the activity. But she told me that she wasn't going to stop because she'd already printed off the paper and bought the glue sticks. So I say all that to say that no matter what level of education that you have, so this was a person who was very close to graduating and getting a Ph.D. in education, uh, that it is so deeply embedded in our society to have these stereotypical views of indigenous people um, that oftentimes, no matter what level of education you have, it is not enough to really eradicate that. Well, then you have a tough job. Yeah, very tough, <laughs> yes. unfortunately. Yes, and, and hopefully you found some um, successes and been able to turn, um, make some people change their mind. I'm speaking with Dr. Brittany Hunt, assistant professor at the Virginia Tech School of Education. Uh, After our break, we're going to talk about your research, okay, and and how you teach the teachers, sometimes by watching the Hulu TV series Reservation Dogs, and your thoughts on National Native American Heritage Month. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Welcome back to Due South. I'm here with Dr. Brittany Hunt of the Virginia Tech School of Education. Her dissertation title was, I'm going to tell you that we're not a myth. 
Native students and non-Native teachers' perspectives on anti-Indigenous curriculum and classrooms. That's a mouthful, but it's very powerful. <laughs> it's very, very important. Please, you know, you graduated with your Ph.D. Um, you went to Duke for undergrad and then UNC Chapel Hill, and then you made it to um, UNC Charlotte to um, really just lay the foundation for the work that you um, do today. But tell me about that dissertation and what it took to get that done. Yeah, so with my dissertation, I interviewed a group of Indigenous students who are in urban schools throughout North Carolina. And so one thing about, um, so I, I grew up, like I mentioned before, in Lumberton, North Carolina, and I, I went to school with lots of Indigenous people, had Indigenous teachers and principals. However, I did not learn very much about indigeneity in the classroom at all, even though I grew up in an Indigenous community. But I still had kind of the protection of my community around me as kind of a buffer to what I was learning in the classroom. But students who are in, Native students who are in bigger cities in North Carolina or who are kind of isolated from their tribal communities don't have that buffer. And so these students shared with me a lot of negative experiences that they've had in the classroom, either from teachers teaching in very harmful ways about Indigenous students or from their peers making really negative comments to them about their indigeneity. And so the title of my dissertation where it says, I'm going to tell you that we're not a myth, is a direct quote from a student who, a Native student who was in Raleigh, um, in Raleigh-Durham schools. And she um, talked a lot about how indigeneity for her in in her classrooms was presented as a mythology. Mm. And so what they learned about indigenous people was was just the lost colony. And so when we, in North Carolina schools, we learn a lot about the lost colony. We learned that, you know, there's this group of settlers um, who were out in uh, Roanoke and um, and then they believe that perhaps they were kind of adopted by a Native American community or Native nation. And, and that's kind of a mythology that's taught in school that really is not backed by lots of scientific evidence. And, and so then, the, and then about the lost colony, it went on to say that they slaughtered right. everyone there. And then that being the only lesson that you learn about Indigenous people... And you're learning about it in the context of like, oh, it's this mysterious myth. What happened to Virginia Dare? Oh, did, yes. did natives take them? That is harmful because you're not then giving any complimentary lessons about actual facts about indigenous nations and indigenous people. You're just teaching about us in the context of, again, this mythology. There was even someone who said something to me once. They were like, well, you can't be Native because you have a Southern accent. And and Natives are supposed to sound mystical, <laughs> is what someone said to me. So also it kind of people don't believe that Natives are Southerners. They don't believe that we live in the South. Again, they believe we're kind of away somewhere out West or, or somewhere else, but not here. Well, that's very hard to believe, actually. <laughs> you know, like I said, <laughs> I said, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, and um, in, in that whole region of Florida, almost everything actually even has a Native name. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if it's one Tallahassee. thing— Tallahassee. <laughs> not only Tallahassee, one of my favorite places is Wakulla Springs. Mm. You know, that's nearby, and— um, that's funny because they're in in Lumbee country. That's the name of a Lumbee community, Wakulla. Really? Yeah. I love Wakulla Springs, and um, and I'm actually sort of really embarrassed that I had never heard of the Lumbees until I moved to North Carolina. 
when I became a reporter here, just like I had never heard of the Potawatomis before I moved to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And I never heard, I just did not know um, that, you know, that, you know, you existed. Now, would you say that in your education when you were in school, did you learn a lot about Seminoles? Um, you know, I don't recall. You know why I didn't? And I'll put this on the record. I attended a school that was K through 12, but it was across the railroad tracks from Florida State University. It was at Florida A&M University, which is a historically black institution, founded in, what, 1887? And so, no, we were taught a different kind of history there. You know, we were historically black. And so, but we did not, I don't recall learning a lot about um, Native people there either. But I think, too, that highlights the larger issue that when we do learn about Natives in the classroom, there's no specificity. Mm-hmm. We learn these kind of sweeping generalizations that don't really get into the nitty-gritty of history in the way we do about other groups of people. And so when I think, for example, of when I learned in school about the Renaissance or the Greeks or the Romans, I learned very specific facts about leaders and and their religion or, or their political structures or governments. But then when we learn about indigenous people, it's kind of just like big, these again, these big sweeping generalizations that don't really highlight that, in fact, there are more than 500 indigenous nations in the U.S., and there are many different language groups and cultures and Indigenous people are fundamentally different from each other depending on where we are geographically. And I think that, again, that highlights a larger issue in schools. Well, tell me, you know, how do you make Native history more nuanced, you know, in your teaching? I know you use the television show Reservation Dogs to do that. Yeah, so I am really inspired by the concept of Indigenous joy I think a lot of times when when people learn about indigenous folks in schools it's always in the context of trauma or sadness or 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 some other misery and in reality indigenous people have experienced these things these traumas but we are also like I mentioned before an inherently joyful people and so teaching about indigenous joy to me is 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 as important as teaching about indigenous suffering and I think the show Reservation Dogs, which is on Hulu, I recommend everybody to watch it. They should pay me some some money for <laughs> shouting them out. Um, but I think that show does a great job of highlighting both. And so the the show tackles issues of suicide and of indigenous generational trauma, but it also is inherently a comedy, and it's very funny, and it's about indigenous kids just like getting into kids trouble that r- kids get into, and um, them laughing and. I don't know, eating chips or doing other stuff that just kids do. And I think showing something like that in the classroom is really important because it it just positions and shows Native people as just being regular people. And I think the average American does not consider Native people to just be normal. They think about us, again, as like mystical, like I mentioned earlier, or mythological or um, like a unicorn almost. And so it's just showing that in the classroom, I think, really adds to the nuance that I really need my students to understand. Now, is there a favorite episode or a favorite scene that oh, you do, <laughs> that you always make sure your um, your students are familiar with? They have to actually watch the first two seasons, so it's like a lot. Two of, seasons, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do. But there is one particular scene for me in the show, um, and folks who've watched the show will, will remember this as being really important, where one of the the kids goes to a prison to, vis- to visit an indigenous auntie in her community. Put your hands up on the table, like we just did. And then that auntie is praying for her. Close your eyes. Gonna have a little prayer. I think too, and, and a lot of times in American society, we think about people who are incarcerated as as maybe not having anything to contribute to society, but that's absolutely not true. And so she's visiting this auntie, and this auntie begins what? praying for her, and kind of it, it kind of um, is this moment of emotional catharsis for this young teenager. And then she's closing her eyes while she's praying, and then behind her, there are all these indigenous ancestors who've passed on who are praying over her too. Take long, slow breaths. Good. Just listen to your breathing for a second. Remember the stories I told you when you were growing up about the people we come from. And that, for me, in a lot of ways, sums up what it is to be indigenous. Caretakers. These are the ones who held us together as we arrived from our homelands. Knowing that you don't just come as yourself, it's never just you. You have all of your ancestors who are always going to be behind you at all times. And so that moment was very impactful for me, and I think impactful for a lot of indigenous people. They're watching you, my girl. You don't need me. You have them. This is the power we carry. When you really pray, they're all around you. All the time. That was a scene from the Hulu series Reservation Dogs. You're listening to Due South. There was something I really wanted to ask Dr. Brittany Hunt about her thoughts on November being Native American Heritage Month. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a difficult month for indigenous people. Uh, Thanksgiving also happens in this month. And so that makes it even more complicated because the Thanksgiving story that's taught in school is so far off from mm. The real story of of what happened. Um, that would be an entire other talk that would need to to happen on NPR. But and then oftentimes in the schools, teachers use that as a moment to have kids dress up like pilgrims and Indians. And it's just it's often a, a month that's really fraught with indigenous stereotypes. And it's also coming coming off of the heels of Columbus Day, which I which we know that many people still celebrate Columbus Day. And Indigenous Peoples Day is only recognized in certain states. And so November is difficult. I think for that reason. Um, Also, lots of times indigenous people are kind of really tapped out because we're called to do different talks and workshops and events for all these different places. But then we're kind of forgot about the entire other 11 months of the year. Um, And so it can be a good time. It's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a good time because folks are learning more about indigeneity, but it also has these other kind of harmful things kind of tied to it as well. Tell me about it. Black History Month is in February. Yeah, the shortest month. <laughs> the shortest month of the year. We hear that all right. the time. 
Yeah. Well, you know what, Dr. Hunt, when I was even preparing for this interview, I was just stumped. I said, do I use the term Native American? Or do I use American Indian? Or do I use indigenous peoples? I mean, when it comes to names and preferences, um, what do you prefer? Yeah, that's a great question. And we uh, I get this question a lot. I would say the best term to call an indigenous person would be whatever their tribe is. And so I would first identify as being Lumbee. But then you may not always know what someone's tribe is, right? right? So I would say indigenous is probably maybe the safest term. But even that is kind of complicated, I think, amongst elders. There are many indigenous elders who not, have not even heard the term indigenous because that's not something that was used 50 years ago. And so they will call themselves Indian or they'll say American Indian. And some, even fewer, I think, say Native American. To me, that's like the I don't know. It's the most stuffy term in a certain way, but um, it's that's a hard question to answer. I would say tribe is the best. There's no, there's really no way to go wrong if you call someone by the tribe they identify as. Um, indigenous may be a second best, but but maybe you maybe ask the person. I think it's always better to ask that person how they prefer to be identified. Um, and people, I think different indigenous people have different preferences. I think I was reading that the problem with American Indian is that a lot of Native people do not like to use the term Indian. Yes. So lots of Native people don't like to use that term. And it also is obviously an inaccurate term. However, there are many Native people who do use that term. Lots of Lumbee people actually use use that term. Um, but then there are some who don't. So, yeah. And then also it's confusing because there are people from India who are obviously Indian. Um, there, There's even like American Indian programs in schools and lots of Indian children from India often end up end up trying to get into the program because they think it's for Indian children. But um, so, yeah, it's, it's a complicated issue. And um, I think it's best to just always ask when possible. Mm. So I would say, Dr. Brittany Hunt, Lumbee American? Not no. American. <laughs> Lumbee. Lumbee. Just Lumbee. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Coming up, more from Dr. Brittany Hunt and how she works to advance her culture, telling stories to help other Native women. You're listening to Do South on WUNC. This is Do South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. I'm here with Dr. Brittany Hunt, Assistant Professor at the Virginia Tech School of Education, and we're going to talk a little bit about indigenous womanhood and motherhood right now, Dr. Hunt. And actually, um, for the past couple of years, in addition to all of the important work that you've been doing, you've been co-hosting along with Chelsea Locklear a podcast called The Red Justice Project. Um, It's about missing and murdered indigenous people. So tell me what made you start this podcast? Yeah, so Chelsea and I both listen to a lot of true crime. We listen to Crime Junkie, Dateline, you know, a lot of other podcasts and things like that. And a lot of times the stories that they're telling on these podcasts are stories of uh, missing or murdered white women specifically, even though indigenous women, I believe, are more like or the the most likely to be murdered per capita of any racial demographic in the United States. 
And so in our community there in Robinson County, there's oftentimes a murder every week, if, if not more than one a week. And so feeling that the stories of our people have been kind of um, specifically uh, forgotten or lost or erased from these true crime narratives. And so we created the podcast as kind of a counter space to discuss the cases of missing or murdered Indigenous people throughout the U.S. But specifically, we often focus on Robinson County, North Carolina, where I mentioned there are lots of murders there, unfortunately. We, we created this to share those stories in the media. Um, oftentimes there would be murders in our community that were so gruesome and horrific that I was I would be shocked, but also sometimes not surprised that they weren't covered on a national stage. And then these these stories would get one uh, paragraph in the local newspaper, and that would be the only time that the story was talked about in the media. And so we created it even to give a little bit of justice to family members. So there's nothing we can really do about the police force there. And maybe there's maybe there's nothing we can do, you know, at the state level, but we can at least share the stories to give families some kind of justice. So how does this work, you know, really relate to your work to dismantle the way that Native stories are told, like in the education system? Yeah, I think in the education system, our stories are often just not told at all or they're totally erased. And I think, again, that's the same with indigenous stories of murder or, or indigenous disappearances. They're not covered um, at all. And so that's what we're finding is is kind of a profound um, link between all these cases. Sometimes even family members wouldn't even be notified by the police of their, that their loved one was murdered or missing. They would find out from the news that night would maybe cover it for 15 seconds. And that's how they would find out that their daughter died. Um, and so our podcast really also discusses some of the injustices that families have felt that they've experienced um, in the judicial system or in the police system as well. Well, it's really sort of sad to think about, very heavy. And I think it became a little heavy for you at the t- for at a point because you took you took a break from the podcast. Yeah, you know why did you have to do that? Yeah, it's emotionally grueling. I think a lot of true crime podcasters out there are covering cases of people who live maybe a thousand miles away from them or who they have no connection to. But a lot of times on the podcast, we would cover cases of people who we knew specifically. Um, Marcy Blanks is one case that we covered. um, And she was one of my former students when I worked at Lumberton Senior High School uh, in 2014. And she was murdered in a, a very gruesome and horrific way. And she was someone who I knew and loved. And, and so talking about stories like that is something that's not, it's something that's extremely personal to us, and I would describe this work as being really emotionally grueling. Some of the stories the families would share with us, too, are things that just really sit in my bones. Uh, there was one particular story of a girl who was murdered, and um, her family has still not gotten justice. And growing up um, with her mom, it was her responsibility, once the clothes were washed and folded, it was her responsibility to put them away. And now every single time her mother does laundry and folds clothes, she has a difficult time even seeing folded laundry. And so sitting and thinking about the little daily pains, I guess, that families have to experience from from not only the tragic event of a murder, but just the, the, the constant reminders that they experience, I think has been really difficult for me. But then also I, I got pregnant last year um, with my baby boy who's now seven months old. Oh, and congratulations. Thank you. And I really wanted to honor my pregnancy as a sacred time. I think to be Indigenous, unfortunately, is to be exposed to trauma a lot in our communities. Uh, we're, we're so close and we're so tight-knit that I think murders or... 
or, or kind of these, these disturbances to our community are really, really emotionally felt. And so I wanted to distance myself from that as much as possible. And so I think we were, we took a break from the podcast partially because of my pregnancy. And I just didn't want to, I don't know, I didn't want to, to be telling those stories at a time like that. I really wanted to honor my pregnancy as a sacred time. A sacred time, a trauma-free time. Yeah, as much as possible. A happy time. Yeah. Yeah, to make sure whatever you were bringing in and what you were surrounded by in the world, you wanted to make sure that, that the baby inside you felt that Yeah. and yeah. came out with ease. I, I understand that totally. Yeah, but again, I mentioned before, as an Indigenous person, it's hard to do. I remember when I was about three months in, I was really trying to make sure that I was only watching TV shows and listening to podcasts that were kind of healing or soothing or or peaceful. And so I put up this Facebook status asking for people to give me suggestions. And then I remember I was sweeping my floor in my kitchen and I got a phone call that a girl who I went to high school had been murdered in front of her children in the Food Lion parking lot. Her name's Kayla Hammonds. And so I just wanted to honor her today by speaking her name. Um, and so I say all that to say that to be indigenous is, is in, in some ways, I, I said before, you know, it is joyful. But in some ways it is to constantly experience trauma, even if it is from a secondhand way. And so my pregnancy... As much as I tried to safeguard my own emotions and safeguard my my baby that was growing in my belly, in some ways I found that to be impossible. You're listening to Dr. Brittany Hunt, assistant professor in the School of Education at Virginia Tech and a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. She's used her talent and passion to elevate the voices of Native people. And now, as a new mother, she tells stories to her child and others in a new book called Who's Your People? A very popular phrase. Who's your people is about as Lumbee of a phrase as you can get. And so when you meet, oftentimes when a Lumbee meets another Lumbee for the first time, or even if they're not a, not a Lumbee meeting a, meeting a Lumbee, they might ask you, who's your people? And in Western society or American culture, oftentimes we'll ask, you know, what do you do for work? That's our kind of first question that you ask. And if you really think about it, that's kind of a hierarchical way to establish a connection with someone. Um, but who's your people is a great equalizer. When you ask someone that, you want to know, who is your grandma? Who is your cousin? Mm. Or am I related to you in some way? Or do I know your auntie? You know, it's a way to just establish a connection with another person in the way that I think American culture doesn't often do when we're first meeting someone. Um, And so that's the name of the book. And the book tells the story of a little uh, Lumbee boy named Henry. He grew up in Baltimore, which actually lots of Lumbee people grew up there. A lot of Lumbee people moved there in the 50s, including my own family. My mom was born there as well. But they moved back to, to Robinson County when she was three years old. But it's the story of him. He's moving back to Lumbee territory, and he's going to go to school on the first day. And he's really nervous about not having any friends. And then when he gets to school, every person is asking him, who's your people? And they're saying, I know your grandma, or I know your uncle, or I know your aunt. And um, in the book, too, my niece and nephew are mentioned by name. They they will tell you that they are embarrassed by this, but secretly they are really proud because they like want me to come to their school and read the book. Um, and so throughout the course of the book, like I mentioned, Henry realizes that he's not alone, that in fact, lots of people know him and that he's going to be okay. So that's the that's the gist of the book. Well, can you read just a little bit for us? Yes, I can. So the portion I'm starting at, there's an elder who is reading a book to the children at the end of the book. 
It says, At the end of the day, an elder named Mr. Jim came to read a book as planned. He told them about the Battle of Hayes Pond and how Lumbees always defend their land. Henry's heart filled with pride. He thought, Maybe I do belong. He started to see he wasn't alone. He had a whole people to make him strong. And later on, the elder said, Son, come sit with me a spell. I know your family real, real good. I know that you'll do well. Henry, Henry, don't you know there's much power in your kin? And when we ask who's your people, we want to know who you are and who you've always been. Now go on now, get on the bus, tell your mama and them I said, hey, I'll probably see you at church this week or at Fuller's on Sunday. Henry walked off so amazed, saying bye to Mr. Jim, thinking these really are my people. They know me and I know them. Well, that's special. Thank you. Mom and them. I did you say mom and them? Mom and I said it with a D. Mom and them. <laughs> mom and them. <laughs> That's yes. lovely. And um, hopefully you. it's being circulated not just through Lumbee territory, you know, yeah. but um, definitely all, all the tribes yeah, across the I, country. Even, even non-natives as well. Um, a program at uh, the North Carolina Museum of History, they did a program for kids there who were mostly non-native and a few of them got my book. And so I'm very happy to have written a book that's specifically for Lumbee people, but also hoping that other folks also get a hold of a copy as well. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. I guess lastly, to wrap up our conversation, I did want to ask you about federal recognition or lack thereof for um, the Lumbee tribe. You know, oh, I wow. S- so we're ending on an easy, easy question yeah, there. I, That's yeah, good. I, I saw you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's so big. I was um, like, oh, let me write some, write something down. <laughs> well, I saw you quoted in some articles, you know, like, what's at stake with the effort to gain, you know, federal recognition for the Lumbee? Yeah, you know, this is such a loaded question. There are lots of things at stake. You know, there would be access to um, more health care opportunities, uh, more educational opportunities, potential gaming opportunities. It's, I mean, so there are so many things, and I think there would be so many benefits to our people. Um, and so there are people on different sides of the issue. Some Lumbees don't care if we get federal recognition. Some Lumbees don't even want us to get it, and many are great supporters. I would say I'm a supporter and I'm hopeful that we would get that recognition, but also I am Native no matter what the government says, even if we weren't state-recognized, even if, you know, nothing, nothing could prevent me from being Indigenous and my people from being Indigenous. And so I don't need that label from the federal government. And also I would like to say, too, you know, that the federal government standards for being a nation are kind of always moving throughout time or they'll say, well, you have to have an established relationship with a place. But then many Indigenous people were forced away from their homelands. Then they'll say, well, you have to have a language. But at one period in time, native languages were outlawed in the country. Um, and so, there, you know, the federal government is always kind of moving the marker and, and moving the standards. And so I know that we have our own standards that we abide by, and we are indigenous by those standards. And so I would just like to, to say that we are indigenous no matter what. And you know who's your people, right? I know who's my people, and my people know me. That's right. (laughs) Well, it's been a delight having you on Due South today. Thank you very much for your time and actually teaching us a lot about what would make us um, better in our quest and everyone's quest to make sure that we understand Native peoples more and um, respect the culture. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you, Leonida.
Dr. Brittany Hunt is an assistant professor at the Virginia Tech School of Education. I'm Leonida Inge. You're listening to Due South on WUNC.